Why don't more infant formula companies use organic, grass-fed whole milk instead of skim? Why don't more infant formula companies use the latest breast milk science? Why don't more infant formula companies run their own clinical trials? Why don't more infant formula companies use more of the proteins found in breast milk? Why don't more infant formula companies have their own factories instead of outsourcing their manufacturing? We wondered the same thing. So we made Byheart a better formula for formula. Learn more at byheart.com. Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. On DAB Digital Radio and 1089 and 1053 AM, after the lights go out, on TalkSport. I'm Steve Harmison. I represented England in 63 tests, 58 one-day internationals, and won the Ashes twice with my country. And I'm Leo McKenzie. I've experienced life as both a Premier League footballer and professional boxer. In this series, we focus on elite athletes and their transition from their sporting careers to civilian life and the struggles which have followed. Both Leon and I have had issues dealing with day-to-day life since departing the sporting arena. And during this series, we're joined by several sports personalities who've experienced similar battles following their careers in elite sport. Tonight on TalkSport, we're in conversation with a man who represented Arsenal as a player and managed both Reading and Leeds United, Mr Brian McDermott. Played for Ricks. Now, good chance for Ricks. Torbett's gone right in the middle there. McDermott coming up fast. Well, the substitution has worked, and McDermott has scored a fine goal. And this is McDermott for Arsenal. He's got two to beat now. There's the first one. And he shoots in! Brian McDermott is best remembered for his time as Reading manager, where he guided the Royals to promotion to the Premier League after winning the championship in 2012, an achievement which saw him named the LME Championship Manager of the Year. He also managed at Leeds United, Slough Town and Woking, while as a player he spent seven years with Arsenal in the late 70s and early 80s, before going on to play in three promotion campaigns with Oxford United, Cardiff City and Exeter City. In recent times, he has worked for Arsenal as the club's international senior scout, while today he delivers presentations to audiences on the subject of mental health. We'll be joined by Brian in a moment. And tonight's interview, Leon, features a man probably best known for his time in football management as opposed to his time as a football player. What are you expecting from the interview? It's you know, lack of confidence and alcohol will probably dominate. Yeah, I think we're going we're to hear honesty, you know, to come on and, and speak you know, about vulnerable situations that have happened in his life, drinking being one part of that, which, you know, we want to get an insight on what he was going through, you know, what his thoughts and feelings and emotions were. How has it really affected him? What's your thoughts on... I'm looking forward to hearing a man talk about making his Arsenal debut and not feeling as though he belonged, and even as he goes through his career, yeah. the things I've read about him, not getting on open-top buses, because yeah. he didn't think he's though he belonged there, even though he played 50 times in the in a, in a season for that team. And it's a Premier League manager, something that we haven't had. We've always had players, but it's a manager that's gone through these as well. First Premier League manager. It's going to be an interesting conversation. After the lights go out on Talk Sport. Well, let's give a big welcome to tonight's guest on After the Lights Go Out here on TalkSport. It's a very good evening to welcome Brian McDermott. How are you doing, sir? I'm good. How are you? Not too bad. Not too bad. Here we've got a... 
a friend in common. A we good have. friend. Yeah, he's a good friend. Mr. Koppel, Steve Koppel. Yes, Steve Koppel. That's my guy right He there. was always trying... In my t- when I worked with Steve... From 2003 to 2009, he was always trying to sign you. <laughs> <laughs> That's quite surprising. He never let me know that. No, he doesn't let other people I know. I think I just yourself. I just got into the premiership with Norwich, then I think we was going through a bit of a, a, a winning season, so then we got promoted that year. So it would have been 2004 or five, right? Yeah. 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 He yeah. seems to be a fellow that doesn't say a great deal, but commands respect. Yeah, yeah. Right, so listen, Brian, this is our third series on After the Lights Go Out. And you are the first guest we've spoken to who has both played football and obviously went into management in the Premier League. So to start off your playing career, you are best remembered with your spell at Arsenal. Was you 17? Well, I remember your debut at 17. So did I. Yeah. So you made your debut at 17, but talk us through retiring. Yeah, so what did I do? I, I had one... After I retired from football, I had one year selling life assurance didn't have a clue what I was doing. Just got thrown into this world where didn't have a lot of money. Mm-hmm. And, you know, back in the day, players didn't earn a lot of money, whatever level you played at, really. And uh, I needed to get a job, so I did that. Then I set up a football in the community scheme at Slough for two years, and I really enjoyed doing that. And then I got, became a football manager. So I was a manager at, Wo- at Slough, at Woking, in the conference. And and then I went to Reading and et cetera, et cetera. Were you ready for retirement or did you have a plan for retirement? Because we talked to people who had a plan. They still weren't sure when they got into the retirement what they were going to do. And the ones that didn't have a plan, they're the ones that sort of had the main troubles when they finished playing. I had no plan. So I remember, Steve, coming back from... I was in Hong Kong. I played in Hong Kong. And I finished playing... And I sat in a house in Windsor that was lent to us by a friend of ours. My house was rented out at the time, and I just sat in the room thinking, what am I going to do? I didn't have a clue what I was going to do. I'd been in football since the age of 16. That's uh, so all I'd ever known, and I just tried to find a way, really. And work-wise, professionally-wise, I've been lucky. Mm. You know, I've never really chased a job in my life. It's just stuff that's just fallen for me, and I've just been really, really fortunate. Brian, obviously, your early days in management, and as we spoke about Steve Copeland before, he's already got a placid, calm nature. What was your first lively management situation in terms of, was you a, a, a shouty sort of manager? Was you a calm manager? Like, mm. What was the dynamics of your manager? So for me, as a person, I'm quiet. I'm very, very shy. But I was taught shouting, you know, in dressing rooms. You know, back in the day when I was in dressing rooms in the 80s and the 90s, there was a lot of shouting going on. And I thought that was the way to do it. And when I was at Slough, in my first year at Slough, I did a lot of shouting. And I remember one of the players' wives rang me one day and said, do you know you are ruining my husband's life? And I thought, what's she talking about? And I wasn't getting the best out of this guy. He's mm. a striker. And I was constantly shouting at him, constantly criticising him. And I realised, I said, I'm doing to him what they did to me, those other managers. Mm-hmm. And I changed I changed my ways and I thought, wow, this is just not correct. This is not the way that needs to be, I need to manage. It's, uh, listen, it doesn't work, full mm. stop. It never, it never worked for me and I hated it. Mm. And I knew this guy hated it. And I stopped doing that and I started talking to him properly. Mm. And he started to score loads of goals. Brian, just to return back to your Arsenal days, starting at the tender age of 17, I'm hearing that you felt kind of not part of it. I felt like an imposter. I literally felt like, what am I doing here amongst these guys? Mm. I, used to, I walked into that dressing room 
at 17, I think, 18, you, you got sort of promoted from the reserve team dressing room to the first team dressing room. And I, I really didn't want to come into that first team dressing room environment. Um, I thought there's a lot of big hitters there, a lot of players that were massively well known, and I'm, I'm in amongst that, that group. Confidence wise, then, you didn't, you didn't feel. I just didn't feel good enough. Yeah. I didn't feel. Really? But I was good enough. Of I, I can say that now that I was good enough, but mentally I was very. I just struggled with it all. I struggled. I'm such a shy person to go into that dressing room was an ordeal to me. Mm. You know, and Is sometimes. Did anybody help him? Sorry? Did anybody help? No. No, no, no one knew. None of the senior players. No, no one knew. I didn't say it to anyone. Mm. You never said things like that yeah. in the 80s. No, no. No. I mean, I didn't say anything to anyone about anything until I was 53 years yeah. of age. And I've struggled with this till the age of 53. No one helped. And I was certainly not going to go to the manager yeah. and say, oh, by the way, I'm, I don't even feel I believe I belong yeah. here because I think he would have made sure I didn't belong there after a period of time. I would have been gone because yeah. that's, that's how it was in those days. Yeah. So it was, a, it was a real struggle just to get there and go through those doors of that dressing room at that time. Yeah. And, and, and I remember... You know, we had Martin Keown there, Tony Adams was just coming through, Dave Rowcastle, and then Charlie Nicholas turned up. And he was a, Charlie was a big superstar at the yeah. time, you know. And I love Charlie, he's a great guy. Mm. But I never felt I belonged in that kind of company. As your, time, as your career went on, do you feel like your personality being that way and, and quiet, do you think that sort of stopped it to where it could have probably gone? Yeah, I mean, listen, I just wish I had someone to talk to. Yeah. I couldn't say that to my dad. I couldn't say it to my mum. I never said it to anyone. And I just wish that I'd have had a platform just to say to someone, am I abnormal to feel the way that I'm feeling about this situation? You know, when I, when I left Arsenal, I went to Oxford and, and we got promoted. I, I didn't play a lot of games for Oxford. We got, we got promotion. I went to Cardiff in the lower leagues at the time and got promotion and played a lot of games. I went to Exeter, got promotion, played a lot of games. But even the times that I got promotion, I played 45 games out of 46 for Cardiff. Mm. And you know they have that bus that goes round at the end of the yeah, season yeah. when you win the promotion or whatever. I didn't feel I was good enough to get on the bus. Yeah. I played wow. 45 games and scored nine goals yeah. and made numerous goals. It's ridiculous. Yeah. I look back at that now and think, God, that is so sad. Yeah. Do you think times have changed since your playing days to your managing days because of the way people can talk about things and they can talk? So the 17-year-old Brian McDermott, if he came into a red and dressing room in 2011, say would his education be different to what yours was? Yeah, probably. Is it into a point where you're uh, thinking, yeah, we've nailed it now? No. You know, I look at the academies, I look at the kids in the academies, I look at those 11, 12, 13, 14, 15-year-olds who what the pressure that they're under mm. from the parents. I mean, they train four or five times a week. They're pro footballers at 12 years of age. Mm. It's ridiculous. Mm. Yeah, it is. I can't have that. Place. I just yeah. look at it and think, that can't be right. It shouldn't be happening. That's cruel. It's wrong. Yeah, They're not children. Yeah, And these kids need to be children. Mm. And that's the most important thing as far as I'm concerned. Mm. Because for me, I always look at the person first, not the football player. I look at the person and then we work on the football player. And I think that's the most important thing that I've learned in my time as a, a football manager and a scout and a player and all that stuff. Mm. Find the person first. No one ever said to me, how are you doing? Mm. And actually wanted to know the answer. Yeah, something else which interests me, I was reading about it, you were born in England, mm. but both parents were Irish. Mm. You decided to play for England under-18s. Mm. Was that a decision that you look back on and think, good decision, bad decision? That's haunted me for 40 years. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I'm Irish, so it's, it's really strange. So 
I used to go back home to Ireland every every summer. Mm. We had a farm in Ireland in County Clare. Hundred percent, my blood is Irish. I had a decision at 17 years of age. Don Howe was our coach. Obviously, he was involved with England, and I was scared of authority. Mm. And I think my dad, I think our family was scared of authority. And he'd say, "Well, what does the coach say? What do you have to do? Who to who to play for?" Obviously, Don said England. Mm. Uh, and at that time, once you played a game for the youth team, you couldn't play for any other. Yeah. And when I got to about 18 and a bit years of age, I realised I'd made a mistake. But the thing was, I'd go to Ireland and I'd be English when I went to Ireland because I got an English accent. Yeah. And I'd come back to England and I'd, they'd call me a plastic paddy. Yeah. So, you know, you had all of this going on in my life. And my mum came over and my dad came over in the 50s. So that lived with me for such a long time. And it's only now that I'm kind of coming to terms with that. Mm. You know, my blood is Irish and it always will be. And I was a boy. I was 17 years of age. And I've got to forgive that boy who was 17 years of age. And I'm trying to come to terms with just forgiving who mm-hmm. that boy was yeah. at 17 years of age. He do nothing. Mm. And, the, and the system's changed now. You, you can you can even play up to 21s yeah. and then change your, if, as long as you don't play, which, which makes a huge amount of sense. But it's amazing when you're saying that you didn't feel as though you belonged. Arsenal was one of the best teams in the country at the time. Mm-hmm. They were one of the top teams in the country. And if somebody plays for their first game when they're 21, you think, well, he's got a chance, promising career. But when you play your first game at 17, mm. that boy's going to make a name for himself. Yeah. And do you know what? I look back at it now and I probably stayed there too long. But I was always trying to fill a void. I was always trying to achieve something to fill a void, if that makes sense. Mm. Yeah, in what sense? You know, like the Irish thing was a big thing to me. I always thought, God, if I'd have got one cap for Ireland, it would have filled that void yeah. for me. Okay. But that was never going to happen. It got to a point where I thought to myself, okay, it's not about getting promotions as a player because I've done that three times. I've got three promotions. I've played in the top level. What about if we could get Reading promoted to the Premier League and I could become a Premier League manager? If I become a Premier League manager, that fills the void. And and that's when I do my presentations about trying to fill a void and what that looks like. It don't work. Anything external for me that I'm trying to fill a void with, you know, a new car a bigger house, an extension to the bigger house, new suit. I've got eight blue suits. When I was in the Premier League, I've got eight blue suits because I wanted to look like Robbie Martinez. You know, and I'm never going to look like Robbie Martinez, by the way. (laughs) So all of these things that are trying to fill that void, I can't fill it. Brian, a major detrimental issue in your life has been alcohol. And this came to a fore probably when you were managing both Redden and Leeds. When was the first time you started drinking alcohol for other reasons than socialising? What did you think it was? It's a good question. I can't answer that because I don't remember. But I did do that. I drank alcohol probably when I was at Oxford United, when I wasn't in the team because I didn't want to feel the way I was feeling. And it changed the way I felt. So alcohol was a solution to my problem. My problem was I didn't feel good about myself. I didn't feel good enough. Just felt like an imposter. I I didn't belong. So when I had a few drinks, it all sorted itself out. Mm. So that was a solution to my problem. I thought, oh, this is great. I've got a solution now. I don't feel, you know, the fact that I, I felt that I, I'm never going to get a cap for the Republic of Ireland. When I started to drink, I didn't feel that way. Yeah. I thought, oh, maybe one day things will change and I will get something will happen. Mm. And then it got worse and worse and worse. And it probably, I wouldn't say tipped over the edge. In my 30s, my wife said that, you know, there's three things in our marriage. There's me, you and there's alcohol. And, you know, that was quite early on. How did that make you feel? Uh, it made me feel more distant because mm-hmm. I didn't want to get found out. So you became more shut off? 
Yeah, probably. I, I kind of isolated a little bit more and I was still drinking because I thought this was the only thing that I've got left in my life, as far as I'm concerned, that makes me feel better about myself. So drinking came into a position of making you feel probably a little bit more confident or a little bit more... It'll just numb the pain. Yes, in actual fact. It wasn't more confident. Mm. It was actually... Numbing. I actually became even more boring. <laughs> yeah. You know, like, I was dull. It was, it was just numbing what I felt. And I couldn't deal with how I was feeling. And trying to just fill that void. I'm trying to fill a void all the time, filling this void, filling this void. And I'm trying to look for external stuff to fill this void. And it ain't working. The drinking, did it start because of the pressure of either career coming to an end? Was it pressure of basically to, to survive from a financial point of view? Yeah, it wasn't pressure. I don't think it was pressure. Bottom line is, from a, the first time I picked a drink up, when I started, I couldn't stop. Yeah. So I have a beer. Some people can have one beer or two beers and walk away. Yeah. And that's what normal people do, apparently. Mm. I'm not one of them. Yeah. If you saw me down the road now and I had half a lager... Just leave the vicinity because yeah. I'll go missing for two or three yeah. days. I don't stop. Two or three days? No, I could do. Yeah, I could really? Do. Yeah, I could do. And look, it got to a point when I was just trying to fill this void, fill this void, fill this void, trying to make myself feel better. And it maybe came to a head in uh, 2011. We had the playoff final against Swansea. And I'm thinking to myself, tomorrow I'm going to be a Premier League manager and everything's sorted because yeah. we're going to beat Swansea. I'm absolutely convinced we're going to beat Swansea because this is that side of me that comes out that says, guys, we can't lose this game. I know we can't lose this game. And we're at Wembley, there's 86,000 people there. It's raining. I can't hardly see. My glasses are steaming up. And at half-time, we're 3-0 down. We get back to 3-2. We hit the post to make it 3-3. Great game, if you like that sort of thing. If you're into yeah. a great game of football, obviously I just wanted to win. And uh, we get beat 4-2. I drink till about 5 o'clock in the morning. I wake up next day and I thought, that didn't just happen, did it? It's over. Yeah. You're never going to fill that void that you know you can fill by yeah. being a Premier League manager. manager. And then we got to start again. And you know, you know the championship. You know mm. how, how tough that is. 46 yeah. games where you know the first 70 minutes of each game is just like a war of attrition mm. and then the last 20 minutes something might happen the game opens up I know what the championship looks like yeah. Saturday, Tuesday Saturday, Saturday Tuesday. Tuesday and then you win on the Saturday and then you've got to go to I don't know Derby or Norwich on the Tuesday and then you've got to go again and you've got to try and win at Norwich and that is not, none of these it's games relentless. it's yeah. relentless yeah. it's absolutely yeah. relentless and there's no for me there was no joy there was just relief so the whistle would go we'd win the game relief mm. Relief, just relief. Mm. No massive joy. But the downs, the lows, the, the defeats were so much harder for me than the victories were good. Mm. And did the, was it the alcohol playing a part then as well? Oh, yeah. And I'd wake up feeling that anxiousness, depression, all of these things. And I never, ever wanted to talk about the alcohol side mm. of it. I didn't want to talk about that. That is something that I wouldn't... That was non-negotiable. I didn't talk about that. You just mentioned depression, which is something I'm familiar with. So how did you deal with not only you got forming a drinking habit, but also depression now is starting to grab hold of you? How does that have affect everything for you? Because I know how it affected me um, and I didn't drink. It's so difficult to know what, you know, where that alcohol was and where that depression was. Mm. And that makes sense. It's like, you know, I know now that I don't drink, that I have moments of feeling depressed but I'm all right with that. Yeah. I, I can just, I don't fight yeah. it anymore. 
I used to try and fight everything. Now I just accept it for what it is. My first thought, generally, is I'll come into a room and I'll think someone's going to be on the other side of it and going to attack me. It's weird. Or a lift, if someone's going to come out of a lift. Or if I'm on a tube or something like that, I'm underneath a tube and I think to myself, don't jump in front of that train. Mm. It's just a thought. Now I know that I've just got to let those thoughts mm. go. I don't fight mm. them, I just go, it's just a thought. So you've had those thoughts yourself? Yeah. Really? Yeah. So you've had sort of suicide... Yeah, I've had, I've had mm. those thoughts, you know, when I was manager at Leeds even, you know, when I was eighth floor of a flat in, in Harrogate, you know, and, and those thoughts would come into my head. And I know how to deal with those thoughts now and I just accept them for what they are. I don't fight the thoughts, I just go, listen, it's just a thought, it's fine. Mm. It's part of me, that's part of my personality. It's not, it's not a problem. And you know what? One of the things about coming into and, and talking about this stuff that I talk about, I never really wanted to talk about it because I thought to myself, do you know what? I don't want to become across as indulgent. It's not indulgence because mm. I'm in a really good place. Yeah. Mm. It's just a process of learning about yourself or learning about mm. oneself. Yeah, that's right. And that's the thing that I've learned over a period of time, you know, to learn about yourself and to get, to get stuff and to get people that you can talk to. And the message is, you've got to open up and talk. Big time. Um, I want to go back to your Redden days, because you mentioned about, you know, speaking at Redden. You joined as Chief Scout. Yeah. Alan Pardew as manager. How did you enjoy that role? And Good. you, within a few years, you, you bring in, was it Kevin Doyle, Shane Long from, from over in Ireland? Mm. Good players. Good players. players. Mm. Good players. How did you enjoy that role? I like that role. I'm a scout. Yeah. Yeah, I really like to be, I like to be a scout. You know, I fell into being a football manager. I never asked to be the football manager in 2009. Brendan Rodgers was the manager at the time. He lost his job. But I felt at the time, look, I was qualified to do the job, to look after the team. But the passion wasn't there, maybe? No, I was was 100% in. Because once I'd made my mind up, it's like everything else. If I'm in, I'm in. If I'm 95% in, I'm not in. So it's like I I knew, and if any football managers are out there that want to be a football manager, if you're not 100% in, get out of it because you have to be. Mm. And I was 100% in, because I knew the team was good enough, I knew the staff were good enough, and I just wanted to do what I had to do, and, and it worked out all mm. right. But the scout inside of it, um, worked with Alan, I, he was a great guy, and, and uh, really enjoyed working with him. Then I, then Steve came, Steve Koppel, and, and Steve, all Steve said to me was just find us players. That's all, all he wanted me to do, was to go out and find players. Mm. But I also took the reserves as well. So I coached the reserves or managed the reserves. Nigel Gibbs, who was there with me, he did most of the coaching. I was out travelling everywhere. Mm. And listen, we had some great senior players there, you know, and good people. And I always think of football clubs only as good as the senior players that mm. are in the, in the dressing room because they can make or, or break the dressing room. You know what it's like. You've, mm. both, you've both been mm. in those dressing rooms. You don't need a manager if you've got good senior players. <laughs> and no one believed that, but I'm yeah, telling you. Yeah, they do. And, and yeah, people look, when you say that to them, they just look as though you're an alien. They yeah. just, really? And no, you don't yeah. need it. Because yeah. you don't need to tell somebody who's out of order because a senior player will do it. And do it you know hurts what? more if you come that from somebody That is the key to being a good manager is let the players manage the dressing right. room. And we had people like Joby McEnough was my captain, Mikael Ledgerwood, Casper Gorkis, you know, and young lads, Alex Pearson, people like that, great, great lads, Jam Cow, all of those. I could go through the whole group. Yeah, good, that's a good bunch. And that's a great, great yeah, bunch yeah, know, of people. I and I used to say to myself, do you know what? I always think, well, actually, who would I go out and have a drink with? Actually, I'll go and have a drink with all of them. Mm. I'll have a cup of coffee with them now. Yeah, yeah. But it's like, mm. I would go out with all of them. They were just great guys. And that takes a while. Mm. It took Steve two and a half years to get promoted. It took me the same sort of time. Mm. And that's what happens now. You know, managers get two and a half games now. That's going to say two and a half yeah. years. Brian, was there any emotions, you know, like 
getting promoted into the Premier League, like, was you happy? Did you, you know, because I know when I'm going through depression in my own life, I can pretend a lot. Mm. You can have a quite a big mask on. Mm. Was you in any of those types of moments with the success? But actually, what Brian is actually feeling inside. So, bizarre situation. We play Nottingham Forest in 2012. And uh, if we win the game, we get promotion. We win the game 1-0. Everyone's delighted. Loads of people at the ground. I go out till about half three in the morning, end up at a place in Reading called the Purple Turtle with my chairman. And uh, we're having a big drink and I wake up. I go back to Medeski Stadium at the time. I'm on my own. And I wake up in the morning. It's seven o'clock in the morning. I've been drinking till half three. And I go to myself, is that it? I don't feel any different. And then I think to myself, okay, I know what it is. We've got to win the league. So if we win the league and the lads get medals, that's it. I've cracked it. Following week, Saturday comes, we play Crystal Palace. We drew two all. Uh, we get a point. We end up, we get medals. We, get, we win the league. No different. What is it? Team didn't play well enough. So all of these things keep coming, yeah. coming. And then all of a sudden, I became someone I didn't like. My ego now is out of control. So that other side of me, that big ego, has become someone who I, I really didn't like. If someone said something to me I didn't like, I would tell them, you can't talk to me like that, you know who I am. Virtually. I didn't say, do you know who I am? But it was kind of bordering on, do you know who I am? I used to go into bars and I used to look at people thinking, do they know who I am? I wonder if they'll take a picture. And if they didn't take a picture, I'd give them a camera. It was like, oh... I need them to take a picture of me now. So I'm now getting off on the adulation. I'm going into yeah. games. Everyone knows I, I don't go shopping in my little town because if I do, people will recognise me. You know, I think I'm some kind of big superstar, which I'm certainly not. And it's certainly not my personality. Mm. But my personality changed with that Premier League. Because, you know, if you're Premier League, there's cameras everywhere yeah. all the time. Mm. You know, you do, you've got all these cameras of Sky Match of the Day, all of these. They're everywhere, yeah. constantly everywhere. Press conferences. So I became someone I really, really didn't like. Yeah. And that was ego. That was my ego. But I was, I was miserable. I was absolutely miserable. It was, it was so bizarre. Everything that I thought was going to make the difference, it wasn't the difference. Because mm, you had a decent bout of, of games, winning games in the Premier League, right? Um, well, it, and then you got manager of the month? I got manager of the month. So I won the manager of the year in the championship in 2012, whatever it was. And I got in the top six for all the managers, like Alex Ferguson, Brendan Rodgers, and you know that. But I didn't win it. So I left the LMA dinner that night thinking, you're not good enough. You didn't even win mm. that. I'd already won the championship one. And I feel really sad when I say that, and it sounds really ungrateful. That's why I've never said it, because I don't want to speak about that, because it just sounds so ungrateful to mm. say something like that. When you're telling me, I don't see it as you're being ungrateful. I just see it as someone that is just constantly putting himself down, down even yeah. when there's good that yeah. happens in your life. You find something to say, well, actually, it's not actually good enough. Yeah. So it, that's what's going on. Yeah, and at, and at the time, if you were, like, in the, the sort of 70s and 80s, 90s, early, early 90s, you didn't have the scrutiny to what the Premier League give. Yeah. But if you're thinking and putting yourself down, the way social media was at the time, because it was in the world, you're constantly getting barraged from the outside. Brian McDermott's not looking after Brian McDermott. No. No, and the funny thing is that's so true. And I was pretty good at looking after other people mm. in, that, in and around that work environment, but I wasn't looking after me. Mm. 
you know, and now I look back at it and and on a daily basis, I look after me first today mm-hmm. and that, that's not to be selfish because, you know, when I get out of bed this morning, I, I have to do two or three little things that I do. You know, I do a bit of meditation. I do what I, what I do. I, I, I actually write a gratitude list for my day and mm-hmm. for how lucky I am to to have heat in, to have food, to have a roof over my head, to have a bed to sleep in. You know, and, and I never would have done that before. So you do that list, that yeah, gratitude yeah. list? Do every you do day. that every day? Every day. A certain routine? Every day. Morning? Morning. Morning or night, I definitely do it every day. That's the, I, I do a lot of writing. Yeah, yeah. Leon, for me, I have certain things, you know. I got to a point, my one ambition in life when I got to 53 was to get a good night's sleep. Mm. I couldn't sleep. I didn't sleep for 53 years, literally. And I sleep most nights now. I've got a bit of peace. And all I ever wanted was a bit of peace. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. Why don't more infant formula companies use organic, grass-fed whole milk instead of skim? Why don't more infant formula companies use the latest breast milk science? Why don't more infant formula companies run their own clinical trials? Why don't more infant formula companies use more of the proteins found in breast milk? Why don't more infant formula companies have their own factories instead of outsourcing their manufacturing? We wondered the same thing. So we made Byheart a better formula for formula. Learn more at byheart.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. After the lights go out, Leon McKenzie and Steve Harmison in conversation with Brian McDermott on Talk Sport. Brian, you've mentioned uh, your problems with drinking and having too much alcohol. Would you say you were an alcoholic or would you say you was a functioning alcoholic? I think the same applies to both. I was never someone who drank in the morning or the afternoon, probably at six o'clock was a cut-off time. I think, yeah, maybe it's okay to have a beer now. Once I'd had a beer, I didn't stop drinking and it might be till two in the morning. But I wasn't drinking at work. I was doing my job, doing what I had to do. And there's a lot of people like that around. There is. You know, but I was waking up feeling really bad about myself and thinking I'm not going to do that again. 
Did you wake up and have a drink? Or? No, no, never. So never did anything like that. No, 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 never. See, people think people who've got a drink problem wake up in the morning and have drinks. Some of them do, some of them don't. I never. I had a, a propensity to pick up a drink and I knew if I picked up one drink that I wouldn't stop. And that would be the same for me today. If, if, if for whatever reason I went to have one drink, I wouldn't stop. Some people will pick up a drink and they'll have one, two, three, but don't really know the levels of when they can stop. Mm. It happens quite a lot with mm. what I see. It doesn't necessarily make them an alcoholic or such, but you can pick up a drink and, and you keep going. Like, yeah. So once you pick up one, you're like, literally, that's you. Yeah, yeah. Is that until it'll pass out or is it just you've just had your fill and that's me going on? No. So I got to a point when I would go out and have a few drinks with some people. Obviously, I was aware of who I was, my position in my job, et cetera, et cetera. Mm-hmm. And then I'd go home. Mm. Maybe I was at Leeds to go to a flat and have a drink at home on my own. I was, what would I describe this as? I was on my own at the time and I was scared to go to sleep, mm-hmm. scared to go to bed. And I'd, I'd go to bed at night and I would literally think, I'm not going to wake up tomorrow. And there's a part of me that didn't want to wake didn't up wake in the morning. Up, yeah. How did it impact your, your sort of time at Leeds? God, my time at Leeds. Um, Interesting, my time at Leeds. I went there in April after I lost my job at Reading in 2013 and there was five games to go and they were were on a losing run and I was wanting to wait till the end of the season to go in the summer but I think they lost five or six games on the spin and they were worried about getting caught and sucked into the relegation so they wanted to bring me in. So I, I went there. I never touched a drink for those that month when I was at Leeds. Mm. And I told all the staff, no drinking. I was like the the anti-drink police for about a month and a half. And I didn't have any drinkers around me anyway. Nigel Gibbs doesn't drink alcohol, full stop. You yeah. know? And um, we won the first game. We won the second game. So we'd had enough points to stay up. They were great. Mm. The people at Leeds were very, very good to me. You know, we won three out of five. And then the following season, we started the season. Okay, we, we needed a lot of doing to so the team, needed a, a lot of work, bits of work. If we'd have beaten Blackpool on Boxing Day, we'd have gone fourth in the league. Mm. So we were right in amongst it, and then it, the wheels fell off for a period of time, which was a really difficult time. And new ownership came in, Massimo Cellino came in. Very difficult time. Personally and professionally, I, I found that very, very difficult. And uh, my mum was my mum was struggling at home as well, and I never got to see my mum. And I was up in Harrogate, living in Harrogate, trying to manage Leeds, knowing that my mum was struggling at home. So... It was a really tough time for me. Brian, obviously when you was at Leeds, you, you, live, you was living on your own yeah. for quite a while, so you was away from your family. Yeah, I wasn't with my family yet. So how did that affect you? It affected me when I was playing, when I was away from my wife and kids at the time I was playing at the back end of my Charlton days. Probably the worst thing for me to be isolated in a hotel by myself, going to training, leaving training, going back home, going into my hotel room, literally shutting the curtains and going to sleep. Yeah. Well... And obviously you, you know, drinking was in your your life. It's right there, isn't it? So now you're on your own and without your family, how did you cope with that? What was your coping mechanisms? Well, I left my wife for a year, basically. So I walked away from her. You know, I'd known her for since I was 18, 19 years of age. And I didn't speak to her for nearly a year, texting and stuff like that. Why did you feel you had to do that, Brian, if you don't mind me asking? Um, it was my stuff. It was all, it was down to me. And, you know, I don't like talking about this, but it was something that I felt that, 
you know, I'm always trying to solve what my so-called problems are. Mm. You know, what is my so? Or maybe that's my problem, my relationship, or whatever. And it, it certainly wasn't. It was everything was about me. Mm. You know, it's very self-centered. And I walked away from her for a year and my daughters. I, I get it. And get it. and you know, I look back at that and I think, well, was I that person who did what he did? Mm. And I was. Mm. Yeah. And I still look back at that, and and I have a certain amount of shame and guilt, but. You know, I, I look back at that person. I, I look, but I can't stare. Mm. I can't keep looking back and revisiting that time because that's cripples, not me. It cripples me. Yeah, if, I, yeah. if I look back at the person yeah. that I was and what I did to my ex-wife now, I know that if I look back at that person, that I've probably carried guilt for the best part of 15 years mm. in terms of what the dynamics of our relationship was. And, you know, you don't wake up with your kids every day. That family unity has gone you'd be surprised what you can try and fill it with. And I found that really, really difficult. So I totally understand, you know, that guilt that can get hold of you. And because of that, I drank more. Because yeah. of the guilt and shame. Right. You know, you have that guilt and the shame and you drink more. You said you'd left for a year. How did they cope with seeing you being the person they're drinking, the, the sort of identity stuff that you had? Did they pick up on it? And ultimately, did it make the family bond stronger in the end? So the only person who knew I had an issue was my wife. Yeah. My youngest daughter, possibly. My other daughter, yeah, maybe. How did they cope with that? I can't answer that, Ian. I, I don't know. I just look at that and I just think, well... I'll tell you what they did do. They showed me unconditional love. That's what they did do. That's what I know that they did do. How they cope with it... It's hard for me to even go there, how they yeah, cope yeah. with it, because it's, I, I instigated it. Because I instigated it, it's difficult for me to talk about that because sure. I wouldn't want to do anything that was going to hurt my wife and my daughters. And I did, but I don't do that anymore. That, that stomach that I... I still can't get my head around it, but that's how it was at the time. So, yeah, I, I was at Leeds for, until, for one year, 50-odd games, actually, and left there. Um, and actually, the one thing that really upset me at Leeds, and it did, and it's something that Leeds fans don't know, or some do, is that... Massimo Cellino was saying that I, I went on holiday at the end of my time at Leeds because I disappeared after the, game, the season had finished. Now, I knew I was on my way. I knew was, we were going to come to an arrangement and I was going to get the sack. I knew that was happening. Most important thing for me, I need to go and see my mum because my mum was struggling. Of course. And he was saying about, like, you know, I was on holiday and where is he, where has he gone, etc. And that wasn't true. That was the one thing that, that did upset me and that was a personal thing for me. My mum died in the June of that year, so it was about three or four weeks later she did die, and I, I managed to see her before she died. And to be fair to him, he wrote to me about that, Massimo Cellino, and, you know... Yeah, she wrote... He wrote me a letter to say, I'm sorry about your mum. You know, he didn't say, I'm sorry that I said you went on holiday, mm. but I, I did what any person would have done. I oh, just yeah, disappeared. Yeah. You say you talk about time at Leeds coming, coming to an end. How did that make you feel? Because... You mentioned you had that family issue with, with your mum and Massimo Cellino, he didn't really make it easy for you <laughs> after that getting a job. Well, it wasn't that so much. I think, you know, he was the owner, so he did what he, he did. And listen, uh, from day one, I knew that my, I knew it was curtains, really. Mm -hmm. you, you just know. Mm. New owner comes in, generally a new manager's in trouble. So Massimo's style is he wants a head coach, not a manager. I was a manager. Mm. You know, like nowadays, everyone's a head coach. You know, I look at it now and I think, well, I was a manager. I wanted to mm. have something to do with the, the transfers and the players coming through because I was a scout as well. Mm. So I knew my I knew my players, and that was important. That did your was... players, did your players, or even some of the coaches and stuff, have an inkling that you was vulnerable at that time? 
didn't show them, did you? It's really interesting. I spoke to Nigel. Nigel Gibbs the other day was the closest to me. Nick Hammond was my director of football at Reading, and I actually said to Nigel, "Did you know?" He said, "I didn't have a clue." Yeah, they never do. No. They never do. Even no. some some of my former some teammates. Wives. Some wives don't yeah. know. Yeah. Some and, wives. And that's, that's not, scary. And that's nothing to do with Nigel. Mm. It's that's how you can how we had to act. you can have that mask of what so called resilience looks mm. like. You know, that's a buzzword nowadays, resilience. Ah, you know. Okay, you lose the playoff final in two thousand and eleven and you win the league the following year, two thousand and twelve. Is that resilience? I would suggest it's resilience, but no well mental well being. So having mm. Having resilience with no mental well-being, what's the point? You're getting out of bed every morning and you feel, like, terrible. Brian, after your issues with alcohol, today you no longer drink. What was the moment when you realised it was time to stop? And what were the chain of events which allowed you to do so? Yeah, nothing dramatic. Well, probably dramatic, I don't know. Um, probably I'd have, I was working at Arsenal at the time as a senior international scout at Arsenal. I was travelling all over the world watching games. The last five or six days before I stopped, I'd had a drink every night. And uh, on the 14th of February, Valentine's Day, 2015, I think Arsenal were playing in a cup game and it was a 12 o'clock kickoff. and I was invited to the game and I went to the boardroom and I said to myself, I am not drinking today. I am definitely not going to drink today. Got into the boardroom, got to the bar at the boardroom. I was going to have lunch with four of the, three other guys. And I said to the guy behind the bar, can I have a sparkling water? And he went, here you go, give me a sparkling water. I went down, sat there, and then there was four of us sat there having just about to have lunch. And the waiter said, do you want red or white? I'm supposed to say, can I have another sparkling water? Mm. And I said, red. Mm. So there you go. So I had half a bottle of red wine. I go back after the game. It was about four o'clock, five o'clock. It was a morning game. I get on the train. I don't have a drink at the pub in uh, Marleybone. There is a pub there. I go to the, the train station, get to Beaconsfield where I live and get a taxi home and I say to the taxi driver, oh, just drop me at the end of the road. For some reason, I didn't say drop me at the end of my drive and just go in my house. So it's now about six o'clock and I decide to go left. So left is where my pub is. So I think, OK, I'll go there till nine o'clock. I go in there till nine o'clock. I walked out of there at one o'clock in the morning. I walked back to my house and uh, I put the key in the door and I thought, I'm going to go straight upstairs to my bed. Instead of doing that, I went to the kitchen. Another bottle of red wine. Woke up next morning. I went to bed about three. I woke up and uh, I went downstairs. And I was living back in the house with my wife. She let me back into the house. We weren't together, but we mm. were living together, you know, because we've known each other such a long time. And I said to her, Sarah, I can't do this anymore. Can you ring someone for me? I need help. And she rang the doctor. I said, I can't do it. And she rang a doctor and I, I, I spoke to a doctor and I then went into some group meetings mm. and that was 15th of February 2015 and I've not had a drink since. Listen, I've never woken up in the morning in the last seven and a half years and thought, I wish I'd got drunk last mm. night. Not once. Do you feel proud? I'm proud of you. Yeah, you know, I'm you, proud of you cause, cause because because of the, what you've done. Do yeah, yeah it's, it's not, you know. Do you know what? I have a daily programme of what I need to do and a daily so it doesn't matter about my last seven and a half yeah. years if I drink today it's all really yeah. straight away I know where I'm, that's going to take me so you know I'm proud that I'm a good dad today I'm proud that I've got my wife back today I'm proud that I've got my my kids that speak to me and show me unconditional mm -hmm. love I'm proud that I'm a granddad today mm -hmm. you know I'm a proud that I actually know what friendship looks like and I'm mm -hmm. proud that I know what unconditional love looks like because mm -hmm. it was shown to me mm -hmm. so all of those things I'm proud of 
you know, I reflect fondly on my time at Reading, and, mm. which is probably not a bad, mm. is as good as it gets for mm. me. I reflect really fondly. Mm. I'm doing these two presentations in, tomorrow and Wednesday in Reading, and it's sold out. Yeah. And I'm like, oh, it blows me away. Yeah. I'm thinking no one's going to turn up. And, it, and they're both sold out. No, stop what, doing that. What, what, no, what I want to yeah. know is, what's the difference mm. between Brian McDermott now and the 17-year-old who didn't have a great deal of self-confidence good enough because what you've just described there to me is somebody who actually quite likes himself. Yeah. Yeah, I don't mind myself now. I like myself and I know what's important now. I know what my values are and that's the key. Mm-hmm. You went back to Redden as manager in 15, finished in 16, and then you returned to Arsenal as the international scout. Just talk me through some of the players, because the likes of Saliba, who's actually at Arsenal now, you know, you, you pushed Haaland, and there's one or two others that you pushed towards Arsenal. I'd love that job, watching, <laughs> watching young players. Do you know what? And that, throwing them that, into, that, into the, the club. That's the one job that I lost that really... I love Arsenal, mm. you know, and, and I'm so proud of what they're doing at the moment. I love Arsenal. I was gutted to lose that job. Mm. I really went, you know, we had COVID and we were pulled in and... The scouts went and left. Yeah. No one was travelling. It's just a fantastic football club, mm-hmm. an institution of a football club. And look where they are at the moment. And, you know, the players... You know, Saliba was a great example. We, we, Ty Gooden, who was our French scout, he shouted him out. And my job was to watch the players that all the scouts had watched yeah. in the different parts of the world. And my boss was Franny Caggio, who was a great guy. And we, met, we, we ended up getting Saliba in as a kid, 18 years of age. Top, top talent and... He's showing what he can do now. But it was a team. It was a team of people. For me, obviously, I've been involved in bringing a lot of players to different football clubs. But it's about a team. It's about the manager, what the manager wants. It's about the head of recruitment. It's about the director of football. It's about all the other scouts. And just working as a team for me, I'm a team guy. I want to be involved with the team. I was always a reluctant manager because you're kind of on your own Mm. as a manager. Listen, that's not completely true. You've got great staff, and I always had great staff, but... It's that feeling of loneliness when you li- when you lose, and that feeling of standing on the line, and and you you understand this. All eyes on you. Yeah, and it's like this feeling of ninety minutes on that line. It's really yeah. difficult to describe. It doesn't matter what it is: yeah. Slough versus Runcorn, or Reading versus Manchester United at Old Trafford, stood next yeah. to Alex Ferguson. The feelings are the same. That is yeah. exactly the same. Yeah. When you go one nil up. You get your heart rate goes to about 130, 140 because you know you've got everything to lose. Brian, um, Russell Brand, I'm a big fan of. I think he's a super intelligent person. You know, he's 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 kind of been through through his own sort of journey. He came to one of your mental health talks. Yep. Talk to me a little bit about that in terms of. I've known Russell health. for seven years. He's a good mate of mine, and he's a great guy. Forget you know who you see in the public domain. Yeah. The amount of stuff he does for people is incredible. I've read his books. I see him regularly. Uh, he's just a great guy. He's a family man. Yeah. And he helps an awful lot of people. And he come to watch you speak? Yeah, I sort of spoke to him about coming and he said, like, yeah, I'll come. That's brilliant. And mm. he came just to support me, really. Yeah, brilliant. You know, and he said to me afterwards, I've seen him on the Sunday, I, I spoke on the Wednesday, he said, would you mind if I give you a little bit of feedback? I said, Russell, please, if you could give me some feedback, mm. I really would appreciate it. But he asked me, my, yeah. would I mind mm. giving, mm-hmm. if he gets... Because he's very, he's very... That's what speaker. he does. Yeah, he he does. does. Russell can yeah, talk. No, I'd love to be able to yeah. speak to him. He, he does. He, he, he broadcasts every day, Russell. Yeah. 
But he's a great guy. What was his feedback? His feedback was was good, and he told me one or two things that maybe I could have added, which I've added to the presentation. Yeah. So it was just nothing but good. You know, he's just yeah. a lovely man. He's just a real wholesome, good man. And you know, like you say, he's had his demons in the past, mm. and yeah. he lives a day at a time like we all do. And that's that's the thing, Brian. Do you feel like you would get back into football, managerial or scouting? Do you know what? Like I said to you, I've never chased a job. Scouting, I love. Something came for me that I really fancied with a, a good club that I really wanted to get involved with. Yeah, possibly. Um, but I do my presentations now. I do a little bit of scouting for myself, trying to put one or two younger lads from the lower levels to the mm. higher levels, and mm. I do that. How do you find doing presentation works It's probably for you? the most rewarding thing I've ever done. Mm. Scariest, but rewarding. Yeah, I was yeah. in this prison the other day and did it in this prison. It was incredible. I'm doing a bit of mentoring, just finish, finishing the League Managers Association mentoring You're doing a course. bit of mentoring, yeah? Yeah, which is good. And, you know, just trying to give a little bit back. You say mentoring, I'm at Crystal Palace, under-18s doing their mentoring, them absolutely love it. Brilliant. And absolutely that's so brilliant. important for someone like yourself. Oh, I love it. You know, and I've got people like yourself, Stephen Reid, I just spoke to Reid. He's yeah, yeah. a lovely guy, I love Stephen Reid. You know, and people like that, you know, mm. that can get amongst it. And yeah. when they stop managing, and Reid was a top, top coach, top, top mm, yeah, of what no, he no. does great player to have him around a football club to have yourself around a football club to me that's so important because yeah. you know what it's like with a lot of the players a psychologist comes in players don't talk to him because they're thinking that he's going to repeat to the manager what you've just said Leon if I'm 17 and I'm talking to you at 44 now oh my god my world changes uh -huh. this is what I'm saying that's what, you is, know you is, know that world yeah. that I'm trying to get to my world changes if I'd have had someone to say yeah. What do you think, because I'm really struggling with this. And I would have been able to, not after the first chat, because you never get it after yeah, the yeah. first chat, but later on, you know, and that could be the same in co the corporate yeah. world, that can be the same in a dressing room, in an office. Yeah. Just yeah. get people yeah. around, start talking to each other. Yeah. And that's the key. It's eight years since you've touched alcohol. How was life for Brian McDermott today? Yeah, today I'm, I'm good. I still go to loads of meetings. I don't drink a day at a time. I'm not going to drink today. And then tomorrow I'll look after tomorrow when it comes. I'm doing my presentations. I've got a wife back. I've got my daughters back. I've got my grandfather. Yeah, my life is, is calm and mm. I've got peace. And I sleep at night. And that's good enough. Mm. And, and you know what the funny thing about it is? I'm still ambitious. Yeah. You know when you sort of talk... I hope sometimes I think, does this sound soft? I'm not soft. Mm. I want to be as good as I possibly can on a daily basis. Mm -hmm. And there's nothing wrong with that. I've learned there's nothing wrong with that. Absolutely. And that's all we all ever want to be, and especially when people listen to this show, on behalf of people that are listening to this show, mm. I can only say thank you, my friend. Thank it's you. been brilliant. This last hour has been fantastic. Your, your, your vulnerability, sharing your experiences, honestly, so grateful to have you on and pleasure to meet you. Thank you. Thanks for asking me. Small details are big surfaces, tight corners are odd shapes, flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rust-Oleum. 
Why don't more infant formula companies use organic, grass-fed whole milk instead of skim? Why don't more infant formula companies use the latest breast milk science? Why don't more infant formula companies run their own clinical trials? Why don't more infant formula companies use more of the proteins found in breast milk? Why don't more infant formula companies have their own factories instead of outsourcing their manufacturing? We wondered the same thing. So we made Byheart, a better formula for formula. Learn more at byheart.com.